Jesus came to earth from heaven in order to reveal the true God and to reconcile humanity's broken relationship with God. We are all guilty sinners who are worthy of death. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. students, if you'd open your Bibles to John 18, John 18, we're going to begin at verse 28. Um, we're in the last day of the last week of Jesus' life on earth. Uh, John 13 through 17 record Jesus' farewell discourse that took place with his disciples in the upper room. They celebrated the Passover meal. Jesus was betrayed by Judas. They left the upper room, walked out of the eastern gate of the city of Jerusalem, across the Kidron Brook and up the Mount of Olives to a private garden called the Garden of Gethsemane. It was located on the slopes of the Mount of Olives. And as you recall, there Jesus prayed. He was betrayed by Judas with a kiss, uh, who had come with the chief priests, uh, temple police, large contingent of uh, Roman soldiers. They arrested Jesus, brought him to Annas, the whole former high priest, it's about 1 a.m. on Friday morning uh, as we speak. And last week, remember, we said that Jesus was going to experience two sets of trials, one religious trial by the Jews, one civil trial by the Romans. And each one of these trials had three separate hearings. So Jesus went through six hearings, three hearings by the Jewish authorities and three hearings by the Roman authorities. Uh, the Jewish religious leaders violated numerous laws of their own code when they tried Jesus. It was forbidden for the high priest, who really functioned as the judge, to interrogate the accused. And we found out last week, Annas interrogated Jesus. Uh, it was illegal to coerce an accused person into self-confession. We call that the Fifth Amendment. You have a right not to incriminate yourself. Uh, it was the prosecution's job to bring forth witnesses and evidence to substantiate an accusation. They failed to do that. It was illegal to conduct a trial at night. Uh, most of these trials were conducted before daylight. Not all of them, but a number of them were. And it was illegal to announce a verdict uh, during the nighttime. It had to happen in the daytime. As a matter of fact, after a verdict was rendered, it was a mandate that you had 24 hours from the the gavel banging down on a verdict to the implementation of the verdict itself, which in this case would be execution, in case there were additional witnesses or additional evidence that could come, clearly they violated that as well. So we looked at last week, Annas is the former high priest, but he's the real power behind the Jewish religious system, and he's the very first one to interrogate Jesus. He didn't call any witnesses, he didn't present any evidence, uh, he attempts to get Jesus to confess uh, to a crime that he didn't commit. Jesus reprimanded him and called for a fair trial. And you recall he was struck in the face by a temple police officer standing next to him. Annas accomplished nothing. And so he sent Jesus next door to his son-in-law's house, Caiaphas. As you recall, we said there was a common courtyard. We had multiple residences that the high priest's family lived in. There could have been four or five residences, very wealthy part of town, gates and walls, but a large common courtyard. So they took him to Annas' house first. That didn't produce anything, so they shipped him probably next door to Caiaphas. He was the current high priest. He was also Annas' son-in-law. And uh, John does not record that interrogation by Caiaphas of Jesus, but Matthew does, Matthew 26. And Matthew 26 says that Caiaphas had called the entire Sanhedrin, that's the council, out at 1 o'clock in the morning for this emergency uh, session, this emergency trial. And the council is the Sanhedrin. That's the Jewish Supreme Court and their legislature combined into one body. It was a group of 70 men chaired by the high priest, so a total of 71 
amen. Total. This group hated Jesus, was desperate to put Jesus to death, but they needed a trial with a verdict to give them cover to kill him. Matthew records they brought multiple witnesses uh, to uh, testify against Jesus, but none of them uh, gave testimony that was sufficient for a death penalty. As a matter of fact, the witnesses contradicted each other. They didn't even agree on their own testimony. So this is clearly a kangaroo court, a mock court, if you will. And despite all the charges, Jesus says nothing. Of course, that fulfills Isaiah 53. It said he's a lamb led to slaughter who, who speaks nothing. Finally, Caiaphas, the high priest, he's extremely frustrated, and he puts Jesus under oath, and he demands that Jesus tell them whether he was the Christ, the Son of God. In Matthew 26, 64, Jesus said to Caiaphas, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, he has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They answered, that's the Sanhedrin, all 70 of them, he deserves death. Now, in the Mosaic law, blasphemy was a capital crime. The problem was the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court, had no authority to enforce the death penalty without Rome's approval. Chances were slim to none that Rome would agree to the death penalty for a Jewish religious rule infraction. Rome was not interested in Jewish law. So the Jewish leaders decided to charge Jesus with sedition, with insurrection against Rome, because it was likely that Rome would take that charge seriously enough to execute Jesus to death. Luke 22 uh, tells us that the Sanhedrin sentenced Jesus to death somewhere, you know, early in the morning, 1 to 2 a.m., 3 a.m. But Luke 22:66 tells us that to make it legal, they got together exactly at daylight when the sun was coming up and pronounced death sentence on him so they could say it was legit because it occurred at daylight and not during nighttime hours, even though they had pronounced the death penalty on several hours earlier. Now, this section of John is unique. Of all the gospel writers, John alone records Jesus' conversations with Pilate in detail. It's unique to John. And John has a very specific mission here. He writes this in probably 90 AD, 60 years after the events. He intends to show the reader that Jesus, number one, was innocent of any crime, and number two, that Pilate tried to deliver Jesus from the death penalty on multiple occasions. Now, it begs the question, how would John know what the conversation between Pilate and Jesus was? Well, two things. We know that John went into the court of the high priest and into the house of the high priest with Jesus during the trial. So it's possible that John followed Jesus into the praetorium and witnessed this conversation. It's also possible that Jesus, after his resurrection, told John about his conversation with Pilate. We're pretty sure John didn't have access to Pilate after this trial because he was, uh, uh, after a few years, was um, uh, exiled to Gaul, to France, and he committed suicide there. So let's pick up the narrative in verse 28. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium, and it was early, and they themselves did not enter into the praetorium so that they would not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. Here's the principle. Self-righteous legalism exalts me above God and blinds me to the truth about God's holiness and my sinfulness. Let me say that again. Self-righteous legalism exalts me above God and blinds me to the truth about God's holiness and my sinfulness. So the Jewish religious leaders, along with the temple police and the Roman Korah, they lead Jesus from Caiaphas uh, into what's called a praetorium. And the praetorium, this word comes from the word praetor, P-R-A-E-T-O-R. It means governor or procurator. You'll see that name as well. The praetorium was the headquarters 
of a Roman military camp or the headquarters of a Roman military governor. It was also the hall of judgment for the governor where the Roman court uh, met and cases were tried uh, before the governor. Now, Roman governors in Israel normally kept their headquarters at Caesarea on the coast. It was a port, so they liked the coast at that point. And John notes that it was early when they brought Jesus before Pilate. The last watch of the night was usually from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. Most Roman business, including the courts, began at 6 a.m. They went to business early. Now, with due respect, they were usually done by business before noon. So the Romans got up early, did business early, and then they usually were done by 11 or 12 at that point in time. It's very, very likely that the Sanhedrin, at the stroke of daylight, pronounced judgment on Jesus and then hurried to get to Pilate's praetorium so they could be the first in line for Pilate's court and get Jesus tried before anybody else. Now, something fascinating, also discouraging, disturbing, but not surprising, the Jewish leaders, they brought Jesus to Pilate's headquarters, probably Herod's palace, and they refused to go in, side, because it was a Gentile residence. The Mishnah, that's the Jewish historical scriptures, taught that entering a Gentile residence made a Jew ceremonially unclean for seven days. Now, that was a problem for the Jewish religious leaders because if they went inside a Gentile residence, they would be unclean for seven days, and guess what? They wouldn't be able to celebrate the Passover. Wouldn't be able to eat the Passover. So they didn't want to become ceremonially unclean and miss the Passover. Now, there was no Old Testament law forbidding Jews from entering Gentile homes. That was a rabbinical oral tradition. It was a human law, not God's law. What is amazing is that, and it's hypocritical to the core, that these Jewish leaders, the chief priests, this is the Sanhedrin, this is 70 people, were so concerned over ceremonial uncleanness, but they didn't have any problem executing and murdering the Son of God. I mean, talk about straining at a gnat and swallowing a camel. I can't be ceremonially unclean, but I'm okay murdering the innocent, holy Son of God, right? They valued their own rules more than God's rules. And because Jesus didn't follow their rules, it was okay to reject him and kill him. What's important for us to realize is it's very easy for us to look at the, Rome, that the Jewish religious leaders and say, how blind can you be? It's tough to see our own blindness. It's tough to see where we justify our behavior from our perspective instead of saying, I wonder what God's point of view on my behavior in this particular area is. Some of us know we need to pray and ask God to help us evaluate that, but we don't want to because we're afraid he might actually turn the floodlight on and show us, right? I would recommend you try that. At any rate, as a result of their unwillingness to enter the palace, you've got this unusual thing called the Roman governor Pilate shuttling between Jesus on the inside, the Jewish religious leaders on the outside, Jesus on the inside, the Jewish religious leaders on the outside, and you see Pilate going back and forth during John's narrative here. So let's pick up verse 29. Therefore, Pilate went out to them, Jewish religious leaders, and says, what accusation to bring against this man? They answered and said to him, if this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. So Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. The Jews said to him, we are not permitted to put anyone to death to fulfill the word of Jesus which he spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. Here was the, here's the principle. It was God's eternal plan that Jesus would die by crucifixion. Humanly speaking, this was instigated by the Jews and implemented by the Romans. It was God's eternal plan that Jesus would die by crucifixion. Humanly speaking, however, this was instigated by the Jews and implemented by the Romans. Let me give you a little history. Herod the Great was an Idumean, an Edomite. He ruled over Israel from decades. He died in 4 BC. He was called Herod the Great. He built the temple. 
He built, he was quite a builder, as a matter of fact. And this was the Herod who killed all the children in Bethlehem under two when he was trying to kill Jesus. So this Herod the Great was ruling over Israel when Jesus was born. When he died in 4 BC, Rome allowed him to divide his kingdom between his three sons. One of the sons, Archelaus, he was the one who inherited the ruler over Judea and Samaria, in other words, over where Jerusalem was located, and he was a tyrant. And the Jews petitioned Rome to replace him. And Rome decided, we're not going to have any more kings over Israel. We're going to appoint Roman governors. They're going to be Romans. They're going to work for us, but they're going to be a governor or a procurator, and they're going to rule for a period of time over Israel. Pontius Pilate was such a Roman governor, and he was appointed by the emperor Tiberius in AD 26. Pilate ruled for about 10 years through AD 37, and he was a disaster. He was morally weak. He couldn't make up his mind. He was vacillating. He was stubborn. He was brutal. He refused to understand the Jews. He went out of his way to antagonize him. He didn't have a good track record at, by the time Jesus showed up. The first time Pilate comes into Jerusalem, right after he's appointed as governor, his troops came in and they carried banners or flags on poles. And on the top of each pole, flagpole, was a bust of Caesar, Tiberius. And the Romans worshipped Caesar as a god, right? So the Jews believed that this was a graven image. You have a bust of Caesar on top of your flagpole and you worship this character. This is an idol. And they requested Pilate to remove him, and Pilate said, go pound sand or something like that. So as a result of that, a crowd of over 2,000 Jews followed him back to his headquarters at Caesarea and surrounded the palace at Caesarea and hounded him for five days. And so he said, meet me in the amphitheater. They had an amphitheater. They all went to the amphitheater. He surrounded them with Roman soldiers and said, if you don't back off, I'm going to kill you all. And so they took their neck, opened their necks up, they buried their necks, and said, kill us all. And he caved. And he was humiliated because he opened his mouth and didn't follow through. They said, okay, kill us, all of us. He wouldn't do it. That was the first mistake. The second one is Jerusalem had a very inadequate water supply. And Pilate decided to build a new aqueduct for the city of Jerusalem. So far, so good. He didn't know how to pay for it. So he raided the temple treasury and took funds dedicated to God by the Jews, and he used it to build them an aqueduct. Well, the Jewish people rioted because that was obviously stealing holy funds dedicated to God. So we sent in soldiers and killed some of the Jews. I, just in case you're wondering, murder is not really a good way to win friends and influence people. Just, you know. So word got back to Rome that Pilate was flunking out as a governor. Wasn't doing a very good job. Later on, Pilate tried to impress the emperor who was named Tiberius, so he had a bunch of shields made, metal shields, with the emperor's name on them. And he hung them in the palace, his palace, and the Jewish... Uh, Religious leaders protested, these were graven images, please remove them. He refused to remove them. So the Jewish leaders complained to Tiberius. And Tiberius actually reprimanded Pilate and said, get the shields out of the palace, which he did. So there's a long history here with Pilate not doing really well as a governor over the nation of Israel. So Pilate goes out to them and he asks them, what accusation are you bringing against Jesus? I mean, you can't have a trial without a charge of wrongdoing. And Pilate knew about Jesus. I mean, the chief priest had said, give us 200 soldiers, we've got to capture this guy named Jesus. By the way, it's impossible that Pilate would not have fairly intimate knowledge of Jesus. Jesus has been doing miracles and attracting very big crowds for over three years now, and Rome was very experienced in insurrection. If somebody's attracting big crowds, they're watching this guy. So Pilate is highly aware of Jesus at that point in time. And the Jews were expecting that Pilate would simply rubber stamp their decision to execute him. They have no charge that will stand up in a court of law, and they know it. So they say, well, he's an evildoer. They give him this kind of this vague charge, like 
trust us, Pilate, we wouldn't have brought this guy to you if he wasn't an evildoer. Of course, that's a character charge, not a specific criminal charge. And Pilate says, I can't try a case if there's not a specific criminal charge. And the Romans, of course, gave conquered peoples a fair amount of jurisdiction to administer their own law. And their Jewish leadership doesn't provide a formal charge that Pilate can adjudicate according to Roman law. So he says, you judge him. You take care of him. You deal with him yourself. you got your own laws. You adjudicate this own law. Now, the Jewish law specified that blasphemy was subject to the death penalty. Leviticus 24, 16, the Lord said, Moreover, the one who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall surely stone him. Which begs the question, why did the Sanhedrin just take Jesus out and stone him right then? Why go to all the trouble of going to Pilate? I mean, look, they had no problem stoning Stephen, right? Acts 7, 8. They just took him out and stoned him. Rome never, there's no record of any Roman reprisals for them stoning Stephen, so you're saying, why did they just stone Jesus? Well, the Jewish religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, they wanted Jesus dead. But they didn't want to take public responsibility for executing him. Because the crowds that followed Jesus probably would have rioted if they had known that the Sanhedrin had put him to death. And they feared that riot would bring down Rome's wrath on him. Caiaphas already said that back in John 11. So the, the Sanhedrin wanted the Romans to kill Jesus for them. So the people wouldn't blame them. However, they don't acknowledge that. They just tell Pilate, we, we're not permitted to put anyone to death. That was true. In 6 AD, when Rome instigated their first government over Israel, first governor named Caponius, they took away the right to inform, enforce capital punishment. Rome arrogated the right to capital punishment to themselves only. They never gave any subjected people the right to enforce capital punishment. Now, that's not the real reason why Jesus was going to die by crucifixion. He was going to die by crucifixion because he prophesied it. In John 12, 32, Jesus said, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself, verse 33. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. Now, the Romans lifted people up on a cross and killed them. The Jews threw people down on the ground and stoned them to kill them. If Jesus died any other way than by crucifixion, then God's word is a lie. The fact that Jesus did die exactly as prophesied is one more proof that he is God. The Jewish leadership, the Sanhedrin, wanted Jesus crucified because Deuteronomy 21-23 says, quote, he that is hanged on a tree is cursed by God. They wanted Jesus hung on a tree because it would be proof positive he was cursed by God. And if he was cursed by God, he couldn't be the Messiah. As a matter of fact, Jesus had to die by crucifixion because Messiah had to bear God's curse on sin for us, for human sin. Furthermore, Scripture predicted that none of Messiah's bones would be broken. If you're stoned to death, you're going to have broken bones. Uh, lots of them. And, even more so, since both Jews, the Jewish religious leaders, and the Romans together crucified Christ, all people of the earth are collectively guilty for Jesus' death, not just the Jews. As a matter of fact, your sin and my sin put Jesus on the cross. Jesus was not executed against his will. He orchestrated every detail of his own execution. He said, I lay my life down. No one takes it from me. So when Pilate didn't take specific action or didn't take action on their general charge of being an evildoer, the Jewish leadership finally got more specific in their charges. They made three charges against Jesus, Luke 23, 2. And they began to accuse Jesus, saying, quote, We found this man misleading our nation, 
forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Now the Jews are going to focus, the Jewish leaders are going to focus their accusations on political categories. Pilate's already rejected their religious charges. He doesn't accept that. That's not worthy of his time. So the only charge that mattered to Pilate was they are charging Jesus by claiming to be a king. Now that might constitute a threat to Caesar. So I've got to take that seriously, and that's where Pilate begins his questions, verse 33. Therefore Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, quote, Are you the king of the Jews? Unquote. Jesus answered, Are you saying this on your own initiative, or did others tell you about me? Pilate answered, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Here's the principle. Jesus' kingdom is a heavenly, spiritual kingdom. He rules in the hearts of his people through the gospel. Let me say that again. Jesus' kingdom is a heavenly, spiritual kingdom. He rules in the hearts of his people through the gospel. Pilate finds it absolutely incredible, even ridiculous, that this individual in front of him could be a king. In the original language, Pilate is saying, you? Are you the king of the Jews? He can't believe it. He finds it ridiculous. He doesn't look like a king. He looks like a Jewish peasant, right? So Jesus now begins to question Pilate. He says, Pilate, are you saying this on your own initiative, or did somebody tell you about me? What Jesus is asking, he's saying, I want you to define your terms. When you use the term king of the Jews, what exactly do you mean? Pilate, if you are asking me if I am a political king of the Jews who's going to usurp Rome, the answer is no. On the other hand, are you asking if I'm the promised Messiah, the king of Israel? The answer is yes. So define your terms. What kind of a king are you talking about? It's pretty clear Pilate despised the Jews because he said, am I a Jew? The answer is, I despise you people. He basically said to Jesus, look, your own people delivered you to me. They must have a reason. So what have you done that they are so desperate to kill you? Now, Pilate knew that the Jewish nation would welcome a military messiah. He knew that they were looking for a military political messiah to overpower Rome and free Israel. So he knows that Jesus is not that kind of king. Because the Jewish leadership wouldn't be trying to kill a political messiah who is going to overthrow Rome. They would be supporting him. Which begs the question, why did the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders, reject and execute Jesus? Well, the first one is they expected, and not only expected, they demanded a military messiah. Their idea of Messiah was they had to have a king who was going to conquer all their enemies and establish Israel as a powerful and independent nation like it was under David and Solomon. And since Jesus wasn't a political Messiah, they rejected him. Secondly, the Jewish leaders rejected Jesus out of jealousy and envy. His crowds were bigger than their crowds. He was doing a great many miracles. He spoke with authority and people were leaving them and going to Jesus, and that threatened their power, their authority, and their wealth through the religious sacrificial system in the temple they were getting rich off of. But above all, they rejected Jesus the same reason every single person rejects Jesus today. Pride and self-righteousness. If you want to read a chapter that illustrates God's opinion about pride and self-righteousness and hypocrisy, put your seatbelts on and read Matthew 23. Seven times Jesus says, Woe to you Pharisees, scribes and Pharisees, and then he lists the crime. And it's a public denunciation of the Jewish religious leaders in front of the people 
the last week of Jesus' life. He calls them out for their abuse of the people. He calls them out for their religious hypocrisy. He calls them out for their external law-keeping. He calls them out for their religious rituals. And they hate him because their pride and their self-righteousness said, we keep the law. God owes us eternal life. We are the chosen people. We don't need a savior. That's the same reason most people reject Jesus today. Right? When you talk to them, honestly, they say, you know, my life is doing pretty well. I don't need help. I'm going to go to heaven fine. I mean, I'm good enough. Whatever good enough is, I'm good enough. I mean, I'm a good person. I haven't killed anybody, at least lately. Uh, you know, I, I mean, I'm not Hitler, for example. So it's a relative righteousness, it's self-righteousness, it's pride and it's arrogance. And therefore, I don't need a savior. Therefore, I don't regard the claims of Christ as significant merit. Now, Jesus is a king. Pilate is honing in on this king business because he wants to find out whether Jesus is a threat to Rome. That's all he's concerned with. Jesus is a king. Not by election, but by nature. He was born a king. He always was a king from eternity past. And he does possess a kingdom. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom is not from this cosmos, not from the space-time universe. The origin of Jesus' kingdom is not material. It's spiritual. It's not earthly. It's heavenly. This world is the organized sphere of Satan, sin, darkness, deception, rebellion, right? Jesus' kingdom is not a threat to Rome's political kingdom because Rome is concerned with politics and Jesus was not concerned with politics. Rome conquered nations with swords and spears and bloodshed and slavery and captivity Jesus conquers sin in the hearts of his people. And he spiritually transforms them through the gospel and the indwelling Holy Spirit. He takes people that are at war with him, reconciles their relationship with God, and adopts them into his family. Rome is going to convert you at the point of a sword. You're going to submit or will kill you. They're two different kingdoms, completely different kingdoms. Jesus said, look, if my kingdom were physical only, I would have an army that'd be fighting to protect me, obviously, and to keep me from being killed and murdered. That's not the case. Peter tried that in the garden. Remember, he took his sword out. What did Jesus tell him to do? Put the sword away. We're not doing business like that. My kingdom does not depend on physical weapons or military weapons. The first time Jesus came to earth, he did come as a suffering servant to pay the penalty of human sin, but he is coming a second time. And the second time, he's not coming as a suffering servant, he's coming back as a ruling, reigning, monarch, sovereign king of the universe. Revelation 11.15 says, The kingdom of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Revelation 19 says that when Jesus comes on the clouds of heaven on his sash and on his thigh, the name will be King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Right? No greater authority, no greater monarch. Verse 37, Pilate's been listening. Therefore Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Here's the principle. Jesus came to earth from heaven in order to reveal the true God and to reconcile humanity's broken relationship with God. Jesus came to earth from heaven in order to reveal the true God and to reconcile humanity's broken relationship with God. Now, Jesus has described his kingdom negatively. My kingdom is not of this world. Now he's going to describe his mission positively to reveal the true God to people. Jesus said, I am a king, but I'm not an ordinary king. I was born on earth as a baby in Bethlehem. That's his incarnation. That's his humanity. That's when he came to earth to take on human flesh. 
But Bethlehem was not his beginning. It was simply a change of location and a change of dimension. Jesus came from infinite heaven, perfect heaven, worshipped as the monarch he is, and he reduced himself, gave up, some, gave up the divine prerogative of his rights into a limited space-time material world and a limited space-time human body. Bethlehem was not the beginning of his existence. He's always existed. He said, before Abraham was, I am, right? I have existed from eternity into eternity. I have no beginning and I have no end. So when he says being born, he's talking about his humanity. When he says coming into the world from heaven reveals his deity. His purpose in coming to earth was to reveal the truth, to testify to the truth. God is truth. Jesus is truth incarnate, truth in human flesh. To testify means to disclose, to reveal, to give evidence. Jesus came to reveal the infinite God to finite people in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus told Thomas what in John 14? He who has seen me has seen the Father. I don't think the disciples got it. If they had, how could they even stay in the same room? You're looking at God himself in human flesh. So Rome conquers by swords. Jesus makes subjects for his father, the king, by calling people to repent and believe on him so that their sins can be forgiven and their broken relationship with God can be reconciled. So the purpose of Jesus coming to earth was to reveal the true God to humanity and then reconcile their relationship with him. And he says, everyone who is of the truth will hear my voice and respond to my voice. Everyone who is of the truth. This refers to the sovereign choice of God for salvation in eternity past. Ephesians 1 tells us that God chose us in him from eternity past to the praise of the glory of his grace. Everyone who has been chosen by the Father will choose to listen to and respond to and receive Jesus Christ as Savior. Jesus said, I am what? The way, the truth, and the life. Those who have been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit are divinely enabled to hear the gospel. You are not here today saved because you are so smart. Because there was a time when you refused to listen as well. The Holy Spirit works like the wind. John 3, Nicodemus opens our hearts, gives us the new birth, enables us to understand, comprehend, and obey Jesus' voice. Jesus commanded in Matthew eleven fifteen. 15, he says, quote, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Hear what? God. You know what God says because he's written it down for you. Incomprehensible, propositional language. When you want to know what God says, you read and hear what Jesus said in his word, you study it, you ponder it, you meditate on it, you ask the Holy Spirit to open your mind to understand it so you can obey it. Many people in our culture have a fast food mentality. All the food they eat is microwavable. Now that's convenient, yes? It is convenient. But you do pay a price in nutrition. Don't wolf down God's word like you do a microwave meal. God's word means chew on it, meditate on it, savor it. God's word is very spiritually dense. I don't know what the densest food you've ever had. I've had some cheesecake that's pretty dense, right? <laughs> After three bites, you know you're in trouble. You're looking at what's left on the plate, and you're going, man, this is really dense food, right? God's word is like perfume. It's the distilled essence of truth, and it takes time to digest that and turn that into spiritual muscle and bone through the power of the Holy Spirit. So Rome's sword was a physical sword, and Jesus' weapon is the sword of the Spirit, God's Word. And he says, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice, which means they're motivated to spend time and listen to what I have to say so they can obey it. 
You know what Jesus was really doing? He's saying, Pilate, listen to me. He was extending an invitation. Who's ever the truth, hears my voice. Pilate should have been saying, tell me more. Tell me more about your lordship, your kingship. Pilate refused to listen to Jesus. Number one, he wasn't chosen by God for salvation. And number two, he refused to submit to the truth. After all, I mean, he was a powerful Roman governor, and Jesus is this poor peasant, right, who's now a prisoner. The truth of it is, Jesus was not on trial in front of Pilate. Pilate was on trial in front of Jesus. It's true of people today. Anytime anyone anywhere has contact with Jesus Christ, they are on trial at that point in time. What will they do with Jesus and their eternal destiny depends on getting that answer right. Verse 38. Pilate said to Jesus, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I release someone for you at the Passover. Do you wish that I release for you the king of the Jews? So they cried out again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Here's the principle. Like Barabbas, we are all guilty sinners who are worthy of death. But Jesus, who was sinless, died in our place and set us free. Like Barabbas, we are all guilty sinners who are worthy of death. But Jesus, who was sinless, died in our place and set us free. So Pilate asked Jesus, you know, the phrase that uh, we've, man, humanity has been asking for thousands of years, what is truth? Pilate is a cynic. He doesn't believe that absolute, objective, knowable truth exists. He should have asked, what is the truth? The truth is knowable, comprehensible, objective, universal. It is not merely a concept. It's not a vague speculation. It is not relative. There is no such thing as your truth and my truth. There is your opinion and my opinion. That's fine. Truth is is. Truth is reality. Truth exists whether you like it or not, whether you follow it or not. Truth never changes. Truth is the standard by which everything else is measured. Spiritual truth applies to all people in all situations all the time throughout all of history. And ultimately, truth is a person. Jesus Christ, creator. Everything in the created universe is defined by its relationship to the Creator. The Creator is the standard of truth. And everything in the creation aligns or misaligns with that truth, but it never changes the reality of that truth. Truth is non-changeable. You can have whatever opinion you want, but you can't have your own facts. Facts exist. Now, there's lots of people that are telling you, well, my opinion on this fact is, even worse, they'll say, well, this is fact when it is opinion. Don't get confused between opinion and fact. Truth is reality. John MacArthur writes, truth is that which is consistent with the mind, will, character, glory, and being of God. Even more to the point, Truth is the self-expression of God. Whatever God says is true because he is the standard of truth. Therefore, God is the author, source, determiner, governor, arbiter, ultimate standard, and final judge of all truth. And sinful people hate this because you can't negotiate. God says... This is reality, and humans want to be large and in charge, so they want a fluid definition of truth. doesn't happen. God's word is truth. When Pilate asked God in human flesh, what is truth? He should have stuck around to hear the answer. He didn't. He walked away immediately. It says he went back inside. Went back outside. And he met with the Jewish religious leaders, and it appears that a rather large crowd had gathered. And he declared to the Jewish religious leaders and the crowd that Jesus was innocent. He was not guilty of any crime, 
against Rome. He couldn't be released. There was no guilt in him at all. Now Luke 23, verses 6 to 11, records that when Pilate found out that Jesus was from Galilee, he sent Jesus to Herod Antipas, who had jurisdiction over Galilee. He was the uh, son of uh, Herod the Great, who still ruled over Galilee and northern Israel. And Herod was in Jerusalem for the Passover. Now, Pilate is desperate to find a solution. What he wants is he wants Herod to make a ruling that will let him off the hook, because he doesn't want to deal with this case. Pilate knows that Jesus is innocent, but if he releases Jesus, the Jewish religious leadership will complain to Rome that he released a dangerous criminal. And he's already on thin ice with Rome. The Jewish nation has complained about this guy multiple times already. So on the other hand, if Pilate sentences Jesus to death, he is knowingly violating justice by murdering somebody already declared innocent. So he sends him to Herod, and he hopes that Herod will send a verdict down that he can hide behind, but Herod sends him back and says, he's not guilty. No help from Herod. So Pilate is trying to set Jesus free, and he's got a tactic up his sleeve. Every year at the Passover, the Roman governor would commute the sentence of a prisoner. They would pardon them and release them. It was, it was a goodwill gesture on the part of the governor to release a Jewish prisoner before the, before the festival. And Mark 15.6 indicates that it was the people's choice, it was the crowd's choice, which prisoner to release. So it was a democratic thing. They would have a crowd, and the crowd would say, we want to release so-and-so. And since Jesus was demonstrably not guilty, Pilate believed that the Jewish crowd would choose to release Jesus. See, that way he could release Jesus, who he knew was innocent, because the people asked for it, and he wouldn't be blamed by the Jewish religious leaders who wanted Jesus dead. So he's looking for a way out. Compromise. And Pilate was holding a notorious prisoner named Barabbas, who was a robber. A robber means one who seizes property. Luke tells us a little bit more. Luke tells us that Barabbas has been arrested for insurrection, that's rebellion against Rome, and murder. In other words, he was a terrorist. He was a guerrilla fighter who had opposed Rome, and Rome had captured him. He was slated for crucifixion. He was on the docket. As a matter of fact, it, it's utterly interesting, purely speculation, but if he hadn't been changed out for Jesus, he might have been one of the thieves on the cross. He might have been next in line for crucifixion. But the crowd, egged on by the chief priest, demanded the release of Barabbas. Not this man, but Barabbas. And you say, why would they request the release of a notorious criminal? Well, the Jews hated Roman occupation. And Barabbas was a freedom fighter to them. He was a terrorist, but he was their terrorist. He would kill Romans, and they thought that was a good thing, right? We hate Romans, kill them, we want to be a free nation. So he was a hero with the crowds because he was a freedom fighter. The name Barabbas means son of the father. Bar means son of, like Bar Jonah, son of Jonah, Bar, you know that, Peter. Abba means daddy, Abba means father. So Barabbas, son of the father, interesting. So this son of an earthly father was set free so that the son of God would be killed on our behalf. What John wants to show you in his narrative is that Jesus is completely in control of his own life and his own death and every step and every sequence along the way. John also wants you to see that Jesus is never on trial by people. People are always on trial by Jesus. Someday, every soul will stand before Jesus at the great white throne or at the Bama seat of Christ. And their eternal destiny will depend on what they've done with Jesus. For us, the story of Barabbas is our story. Every one of us stands rightly condemned, justly condemned for our sins, which we have committed. We were all on death row. By the way, for those who don't know Christ, this life is death row. 
you're just burning time until judgment day. You don't know that. You don't want to believe that, but that's what's going on. This place is death row unless you know Christ and your sin has been forgiven and He set you free. We are blessed beyond what we comprehend by the grace of God that sent Jesus to die in our place and set us free from Satan, sin, death, and hell. John wants you to understand that. Let's review and then Daniel come and lead us in prayer and praise. Point one, self-righteous legalism exalts me above God and blinds me to the truth about God's holiness and my sinfulness. By the way, this is not just for unbelievers. This is also for Christians. We tend to justify our own sin, especially the sins we like. We're, we're comfortable with them. We want to hang on to them. And we justify them. That's legalism. We need to confess them. Number two, it was God's eternal plan that Jesus would die by crucifixion. Humanly speaking, this was instigated by the Jews and implemented by the Romans. Ultimately, the Jews did not kill Jesus. The Romans did not kill Jesus. God the Father killed the Son for us on our behalf in our place. These are the human choices that were made and they bear their guilt individually and collectively for that decision in the same way each of us will bear our own guilt or otherwise based on what we do with Jesus. Number three. Jesus' kingdom is a heavenly spiritual kingdom. He rules in the hearts of his people through the gospel. When someone tells you you should take up the sword and go kill people because you're angry with what they're doing against religious liberty or they want to use the state to accomplish what the gospel can accomplish, walk away. The gospel can carry itself. The Holy Spirit convicts hearts. Don't worry about that. Number four, Jesus came to earth from heaven to reveal the true God and to reconcile humanity's broken relationship with God. If you want to know what God the Father's like, look at Jesus the Son, read his document that reveals himself. And number five, like Barabbas, we are all guilty sinners. We are worthy of death, every one of us, but Jesus, who was sinless, died in our place and set us free. And on the basis of this last point, you will see what Andrew talked about this morning, the worship of heaven in Revelation 4 and Revelation 5, based on the lamb that was slain. Read ahead. Next week, we'll be spending another several verses uh, on Pilate and Christ. It's a privilege to be with you, truly. I love you all. Now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at MANA, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to manabiblepodcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.